And that uh, conference is also coming up. Christine and I actually had a chance to do one of those uh, a few years back. And, uh, it, you know, every conference, no, there's no magical solution to overcoming all of the stuff in your life. But getting together and away with your spouse and spending time together working on your marriage will always lead to life and health and growth. And so I strongly encourage you to consider that. And uh, good morning, church. It's great to be with you. We are uh, walking in this series in the steps of Jesus, talking uh, about his life leading up to Easter and the cross. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to launch into this conversation with you guys and look at some of these key encounter moments that Jesus had on his journey towards the cross, towards the Easter story. And uh, I'm really grateful to uh, North Point Church, a church that we connect with from time to time, kind of for some of the thoughts for this series and and uh, I just have been uh, real blessed by that. I was thinking about uh, this week as we talk about how Jesus interacts with the disenfranchised. I was thinking about when I was younger, I changed schools uh, several times in elementary school. Did anybody change schools more than, more than once as they were growing up? More than twice? Yeah. So you guys know the pressure of being a new guy or a new gal at a school where pre-existing relationships have already been established, right? And so I have a table here this morning because I want to just think a little bit about that experience that you had the first couple times you had to sit down at a lunch table. You remember the tension and the terror and the, and the fear that went through your heart and life as you looked for a place to sit and looked for a place to fit in? Uh, I changed schools in first grade, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade. And so, uh, and we weren't military, so that wasn't, uh, that wasn't, some of you are like, oh, military family. No, we just moved around a lot early on uh, as we were figuring life and things out. And, and, uh, and so I know that pressure of trying to fit in. And, uh, you know, I remember shifting between personality types based on the school. I remember I went to one school where all the kids played soccer and I wasn't a soccer kid. And so I tried to go out and play soccer and uh, I couldn't get picked on a team. Yeah, that was, you can feel that with me for a minute. So from that moment on in second grade, I decided that soccer wasn't a real sport and that cool kids played other things because I couldn't get picked on a team. <laughs> Some of the soccer lovers, my kids play soccer now and I have to just eat that. But uh, for years, I was like, nobody likes soccer. Soccer's not a real sport. But it was just a wound I had because there was a table where the soccer kids sat and guess who wasn't allowed to sit at that table? This guy. I know, I know the pressure of that. And we would laugh and think that's all elementary school or junior high or high school, but it does translate as you get older and you get to the work lunch table. And who gets to sit where at the work lunch table becomes a thing, right? Maybe it's in your neighborhood and it's in, uh, you know, maybe your neighborhood has, a, I don't know, one of those HOAs or something and there's a group that gets to make decisions or maybe there's a circle in your uh, a relationship of families and parents and you're trying to break in or maybe now it's your kids that are on the team but the parents are trying to sit together and figure out where you fit. And it's a hard thing to figure out where we can sit and where do we fit and uh, it's a pressure point thing. Can we be honest? Churches have this same pressure. Where's the cool kid table? Am I at the cool kid table? Do I get to be with the cool kids? Where do I fit? Am I on this team or can I fit in here? And we feel the pressure of sitting at the table. I don't know um, if you guys were big Forrest Gump fans when it came out, but I always remember him walking through the bus. Seats taken. Seats taken. Just looking for somewhere to fit in. Little Jenny says, you can sit here if you want, right? Changes the course of his life being invited to just sit with 
someone else. And, and the tables in our lives, they tell us things about us. They tell us things about us, who we associate with and who we sit with and who we put into our life. They tell us things. They're reflections and mirrors of, of us and our values and, and who we identify with and who we like and maybe who we don't think should be at our table from time to time. Can we be real honest, church folks? Church folks are notorious, notorious for sitting at tables and looking around going, can't sit here. Can't sit here. Oh, you don't think the way we do about this particular thing? You can't sit here. Now, we've been talking about this next season of our church, and one of these big picture themes that God's kind of uh, uh, spoken through the Holy Spirit, through prayer nights and fasting, has been this tension that in our neighborhood, we have to start moving from isolation to community. We have to start breaking the stranglehold of isolation that sits in the Pacific Northwest window that because of our weather and because of our independent nature, because of technology, we just don't integrate and do life together the way the scriptures paint a picture of doing life together. But if we're passionate about moving from isolation to community, we better at some point have a conversation of who gets to sit at the table. Who gets to come in? Who gets to be a part of moving from isolation to community? Who gets to come and have a seat? And, and, and at what point do we, do we recognize what's happening and what message we're sending by who we let sit at the table? It can be dangerous to begin to only surround ourselves with people who are like us. It can be an interesting thing. You know, you know it's weird because culture and the world has gotten more and more like this. I'm 40 now, crazy, but I can look back and say things didn't used to quite be this way. As a matter of fact, I heard one, uh, one stat. This was crazy. Back in 1976, the presidential election, this has nothing to do with who people vote for, but just want you to catch this. 1976, presidential election, when they polled voters coming out, the exit polls, 25% of Americans lived in a county where it was considered a landslide vote one way or another. 25%, one in four Americans, based on polling, lived in a county that went landslide one direction or another. This last election, no matter how you vote, 80% lived in a county that was a landslide one way or the other. What does that mean? That means more and more and more, we have begun to surround ourselves at the table with people who agree with us, who think like us, or look like us, or make about what we make, or, or, or have the same basic values, and we've moved around and, and kind of homogenized our culture so that we are spending most of our time with people who basically think or have values about the same as we do. Now, this is sometimes convenient for, for culturally just kind of figuring out your neighborhood, and it would not necessarily be a problem except for this simple fact. Jesus constantly surrounded himself with people who were nothing like him. And the Jesus model of living was not this model that we have developed in our culture today. As a matter of fact, he flew into the face of this model time and time and time and time again. You see, there's a danger of surrounding ourselves with people, only with people that we agree with. 
We see it in the church all the time. I mean, we just do. I'm going to just say some things that are going to offend people. And you got my email. My email is Donald at... (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Donald. I'm just going to say a couple things that are going to be offensive, and we're just going to eat it together, and then you can decide if you, you like me or not afterwards, and that's okay. Christians are notorious for, for, for setting up tables just in the faith. Just in the faith. We only want to associate with people in the faith who do the faith the way we do it. We want to break off based on certain value systems. We've been to churches where if you're a homeschool, you're in. If you don't homeschool, you're not in. We've been to churches where if you experience the Holy Spirit this way, you're in. If you don't experience the Holy Spirit this way, you're not in. We've been to churches where we said, you know, we're going to use big terms that mean nothing to outsiders like Calvinism and Arminianism. You've been to churches where we've had arguments over, are we predestined or do we have free will? And we rift and sit down and we, we, we mark our lunch tables. We sit here. We're amillennial Arminians. You can Google that stuff later and know what kind of emails I have to sift through. Come on, we've been to churches. We can get a little bit less technical than that. That pastor doesn't wear jeans. That pastor does wear jeans. That worship has electric guitar. That lights are too bright or no lights should be on. There was smog on the stage. Smog. I'm from the Bay Area. Fog and smog are the same thing. There was fog on the stage, or there was no fog on the stage. Come on now. He read the King James Version. He doesn't even know the King James Version is the only inspired version. We've been in those churches. You've seen them. So if we're good, how about this? Oh, man, I don't even know if it's safe to go here. They talk to the pastor at that church. They're silent at that church. It's all white people at that church. That pastor's brown. Come on, somebody. Oh, how far I want to go until I push your buttons. (laughs) They all drive nice cars. Nobody drives nice cars. They have a nice building. Why do they put money in a building at all? We're good at that in church world. If we do that in church world, how are we ever going to figure out how to take a neighborhood who's desperate for Jesus and introduce them to the love of the Father? And say, hey, you can sit here if you want. What if they don't think like you? What if they don't know if they're amillennial, pre-trib, or post-trib? When's the rapture going to happen? Is the rapture a real thing? Show me the rapture in Scripture anyways. What if that debate means nothing to them? Dana, who I love, is right here, and I can't get away from this one. What if I stretch and pray? That's, that yoga is demonic. Whoo! <laughs> I'm sorry, I got to go there. Because we wrestle with these tensions. We wrestle. And we wrestle with who gets to be at the table. And I'm not saying those are bad, all questions. I'm just saying we do it as insiders who already know the love of the Father. How are we going to invite people who think we're judgmental, who think we're hypocritical, who think we're unkind, who think we're caricatures because they've seen online things. They think the Twitter version of faith is real. Come on now. 
How are we going to invite people like that to our table? So Jesus lives in this tension, and he has these incredible conversations with complicated people. And we look at the life of Jesus, and he doesn't seem nearly as concerned with the table and who gets to be there as we would be. He moves from person to person that we see, and he has these just incredible conversations with very complicated people. And I don't know about you, but I, I tend to like the comfort, I'd just be real, of knowing who's at my table. It's comfortable to get into a rhythm of who gets to be at the table. And it's comfortable to be in a, in a season of saying, okay, I get, these are, these are my people. But Jesus, time and time again, breaks through this picture and has incredible conversations with very complicated people. And so I wonder if this makes us tense or not. Maybe you haven't been at church for a long time, and you're hearing this, and you're laughing, going, oh, man, these guys are way honest here. I'm glad you're here today, right? I'm glad you're here today, because we are going to be a little bit honest. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time, and you, know, you haven't even thought about this stuff for a while. I hope this is tension uh, inviting for you, but I also hope it's very freeing for you as you see a picture of who Jesus is, because he always moved into incredible conversations with complicated people. Well, what does it matter how Jesus did it? We're not perfect, and Jesus was perfect. And so we can't be expected to held, held to that model, right? But here's the problem, is Jesus is literally a picture of who the Father is. And I love this. I love that Paul says it this way, because it's so helpful for me. In, uh, what is it, in Colossians or whatever? Um, Colossians 1.15, he says that, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Why does he use this language? He uses this language because he wants us to understand that while God the Father, this invisible God that's so hard to describe and it's so hard to kind of figure out, what does he really want from me? How would I behave in such a way that brings honor to him? If you ever wanna know, if you ever want a picture of what it's like to live in a way that fulfills the heart of God the Father, then just look at the behaviors of Jesus. He's the image of, of the invisible God. Uh, one, one pastor said it this way, and it's always stuck with me. He's God in a bod. He's God in a bod. So his behavior, his actions, his interactions with people are a picture of how God the Father wants to interact with people. And so this tension that we have over who gets to be at the table is constantly broken by the behaviors of God the Father in a bod. Jesus. So how does Jesus do it? I'm going to take us into one of the stories you've probably heard a lot of times if you're a church person, but I want to take us to it through this lens of who gets to be at the table. And I'm going to be in John chapter four, and you can race me there. If you have your Bible, I'll put the scriptures up for you um, if that's helpful. But we're going to see Jesus. The longest one-on-one -on -one conversation he has in all of the scriptures is with someone who clearly does not belong at the table by any of the standards of that day. And in order to understand this conversation, I gotta give you a little bit of history. I'm in John chapter four, and he's gonna speak with a woman here. And uh, just right off the bat, he's breaking some social and cultural barriers by having a one-on-one -on -one conversation as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a leader with a female and nobody else present. He's already breaking social barriers right off 
of the bat. But he's breaking these things and bringing life to everyone that comes close to him. So to understand this conversation, you have to understand a little bit about the woman he's talking to. She's from Samaria. Now, the Samarian area uh, of of Israel was an area that got conquered uh, in 722 BC by the Assyrians, uh, the same way that all of Jerusalem got conquered by the Assyrians, it got wiped out by them. And what happened during that time is the Assyrians' plan was they conquered, they took the best of the best with them, remember Daniel and all of them, uh, and then they left the rest of the people there, and then they just intermingled, intermarried, intermixed with them, and tried to destroy their culture and bring them. They actually were great at bringing everyone to the table. The table they just wanted them to come to was awful. It was murderous and gross and all of those things. But they were welcoming of everyone at the table, and so they took the best and the brightest out because they would resist that, and then they culturally indoctrinated uh, these groups. And so this area of Samaria uh, never really recovered from this multicultural invasion that happened to them. And as a result, there were some roots there that were Jewish and traditional Jewish uh, cultural roots, but it was very intermingled and intermixed with these heathens, and it created this new kind of ethnicity and race, and they were the Samaritans. And the Jews hated them outright. These are people who the Jews did not allow to the table because they took a version of their Jewishness and perverted it in their eyes and mixed and matched it with other things and tried to create a more convenient version of faith in their eyes. And so they detested these people. Ethnically, they were a, uh, a, uh, an enigma to them. They did not like them, and they rejected them socially. Um, they, didn't, they rejected them uh, in the faith. They did not care for them. As a matter of fact, it's bizarre. If you ever look at a map, I should have put it up here for you. The Jews would be traveling through Israel, and they would hit Samaria, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but they would avoid the area all together. It's like, we don't like it here. It's like Fife. I take shots at Fife all the time. I don't know why. It's fun to make fun of Fife. If anyone ever comes and they're from Fife, I'm sorry. And he's going to meet a woman who has culturally is also an enigma. She has been married five times. Now, five marriages is pretty still unusual in our cultural today. In that time, it was unheard of. And we don't have a story of what happened these five times. Has she been divorced? Has she been rejected and put out? Has her husband died? Did she murder him? I mean, we don't know what's happening to this woman, but five marriages is an excessive number of marriages, and it's enough that culturally, even in Samaria, she has no seat at the table. She's not welcome into their community, into their neighborhood. She's in a smallish town where everyone knows each other's business. We've all seen that environment before. And we know that she's thirsty. She's on her way to get water. I uh, want to pick up the story here in John chapter 4, and then I'll tell a little bit more about her. It's the longest, I said, one-on-one conversation that Jesus has with anyone recorded in Scripture. And so in verse 3, it says, He left Judea, and he went once more back to Galilee. John, the beloved, he's writing this and he gives us some context. In verse four, he says something profound. He goes, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, hold on a second. I just told you they avoided Samaria like the plague. They didn't like setting foot there. They thought the land was like cursed. They thought the people would contaminate them. They didn't go through Samaria. There's no such thing as you had to go through Samaria. So this is a fascinating statement. It's kind of like, you know, if you want to go south, you have to take I-5. 
Well, you don't have to take I-5. You basically should take I-5. It's the most direct route. It's the most appropriate way to go. It's the simplest way to go. But I've driven on I-5 before when it's been shut down, and guess what they do? They divert you to other ways. Now, if you want to go south and you don't want to take I-5, it's possible to do it. It's just going to take you time. It's going to be less convenient. You're not going to get the freeway experience. And that's essentially what's happening here. They are on a beeline towards Jerusalem. And John says he had to go through Samaria. But he didn't have to go through Samaria. Except for Jesus was like, yeah, we're going through Samaria. It says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, I've been to Israel, and I've had a chance to be out in the desert there, and I can tell you at noon, it's hot. We don't get that kind of hot here. We, uh, you know, we get hot a couple days, and we're like, oh, yeah, this is the worst. It's hot. It is not the desert at noon hot here at any given time. And so we don't even understand the amount of heat, nor do we generally walk in sand, in sandals, the way these guys are. They are journeying in the sand, in the desert, in sandals, and it's noon, and it's hot. And he's thirsty. He's tired, and he sits down by the well. And we meet this woman. I'm going to read this description. It's not my description. Just a story of her to kind of bring her into our story. I want you to think about this woman at the well. It says, sighing deeply, she picks up her earthen jar and she places it on her shoulder. With her free hand, she opens the door and suddenly the heat hits her. And for a few seconds, she can't see a thing. Then her eyes begin to adapt to the white light outside. She bends over slightly and she walks through the low door. Outside, it's quiet. It's not dead quiet. The cicadas are buzzing in the trees, but there's no one in sight. She's alone. She looks up and down the dusty street, but she doesn't see any of the other women. With another sigh, she begins to walk to the outskirts of town. See, this woman's on the way to fetch water, and it's not a good time to fetch water. In fact, it's not a good time to be outside at all. The sun has reached its zenith, and it seems to hang in the air as it beats down mercilessly on her. And she could have chosen a cooler time of day, but that would have meant facing the other women. As she nears the well, the woman notices a man who's sitting against it. She hesitates. What's he doing there? She wants to turn away, but she needs the water. With downcast eyes, she walks closer. Perhaps he will just ignore her, but he doesn't. Instead, he asks her for some water. He shouldn't have spoken with her. The entire etiquette of the day forbids it, but he does. Verse 7 says, When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Isn't it interesting how Jesus crosses so many cultural, ethnic barriers? He has no problem walking in. I, I, I had tension with this passage because I wanted to talk about, do we, really, do we bring things to God? Does he really need a drink? Or does he need us to know that we can bring him a drink? I'm not sure the tension, I wrestled with this tension, because does he need something from her, really? 
Because he's about to have a conversation about living water. Does he need a drink or does he need her to be invited into relationship with whatever it is she has? He says, will you give me a drink? Will you take and bring the thing you have to me? Will you trust me enough to cross over the barriers and sit at the table with me? Will you give me a drink? He invites her to his table. Verse 8, the disciples had gone into town to buy food. This is funny to me because I want to ask the question, how many men does it take to go get food? And the answer is all of them. (laughs) They just leave Jesus behind by himself. This is a bizarre thing for me to get. It's like, why wouldn't one or two of them stay with him and the rest? But I just recognize it's a team effort to accomplish trivial things, gentlemen. (laughs) And Jesus knows he has an appointment. Come on. A defining moment. She didn't know she had a defining appointment ready, but Jesus did. She thought it was just another day of not being invited and not being welcomed in and going through the motions and trying to avoid the spectacle and the tension. Come on now. She's eating her lunch in the field by herself in the sun, uncomfortable because no one will invite her in. Even her own people don't want her. She's been married five times. She's an enigma. She's a social pariah to them. And he invites her to the table. Jesus sitting at the well and this timing to meet her is making a statement that I can't undersay. He is willing to go out of his way to meet people where they are. He's willing to go out of his way and meet people where they are. And maybe... Maybe you're in the room today, and the one thing you need to hear out of this whole thing is that Jesus is willing to go out of his way and meet you right where you're at. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to get yourself a seat at any table. You don't have to do some things specifically to get his attention. He will meet you where you are. Will you give him some water? Verse 9, the Samaritan woman is no fool, and she says to him, Ah, you're a Jew. I love that. Just like blunt. Hey, you're, you're a guy. You're brown. You're a Democrat. You're white. You're Republican. You're whatever. You're rich. You're homeless. You're, you're, let's point out why we can't do this thing first. Here's all the reasons you don't get to be at my table. He says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you even ask me for a drink? I like this John's clarifying so that all of history will know this nuanced piece of information that we might not have otherwise. The Jews just don't even associate with Samaritans. Come on now. The Christians, they don't even associate with people who are struggling with whatever that thing is. They don't even associate with them. Whoo. It hurts, Jesus, doesn't it? They don't even associate with people that way. John recognized it. She's saying, Jesus, if I had a table, you wouldn't even come over here based on all of this. And Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God, whoo, 
If you really knew the kindness of God, if you really knew the grace of God, if you had a picture of the actual character of who God really is, if you knew the gift of God, see the problem is you have a picture of what you've assumed that looks like, but I'm God in the flesh. And so I wanna introduce you to the authentic heart of the Father. If you knew that, it would blow the doors off of what you're saying. He goes, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have instead asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. He says, you you would have come to me with your offering, what you have, what you think, not knowing what it is, but you would have recognized you could have asked me for something that would have taken your life in a whole other direction. It's available for you. She's quick and clear to point out their differences. We don't have the same faith. We don't have the same background. We don't, there's gender issues here we can't cross. I see all the reasons why this doesn't fit. And Jesus doesn't see any of those things. He goes right to her heart. Verse 11. She still held up a little bit with this tension. She's like, um, sir... Uh, I don't know how to tell this to you, but you don't even have anything with to draw water from the well and it's deep. Uh, I don't know what this living water is you speak of, but you have no way to provide that. And then she goes, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, um, listen, Everyone who drinks this water is going to become thirsty again. You're looking for a temporary solution. I have a permanent one. You're looking to fix the tension of the moment, and I'm looking to change the course of your destiny. Verse 14, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus, you don't even really know what you need. You don't even really know what you need. But I do. And I'm here. And if you'd come to me, I'd break all of the fear and the social things and all of the structure. I'd break all of those things. And she's still being practical with him. I love her response. She's practical. He's like, I'm going to give you living water. You're never going to get thirsty again. And her brain goes to, I don't have to sneak out in the heat of the day anymore and be isolated from community and be out here in the desert. You're going to solve this very practical, embarrassing thing peace of my life. I can hide in my house and have water and be okay. Is that what you're saying, God or Jesus? And so she says in verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here and draw water. It's like, nice. You're going to give me an out of relationship. I don't have to deal with the tension of relationship anymore. She thinks she's getting an escape clause. Jesus is about to press right into her real tension. This next piece of the conversation, I love it because it's crazy insensitive. It's crazy insensitive to talk with someone you just met and immediately go to their real problem. It's crazy uncool to to point out, even if it's incredibly obvious, to sit with someone and say, hey, looks like you're falling on hard times. That's an insensitive approach, right? Hey, it looks like your big struggle here is this. But Jesus does not shy away from a difficult conversation. Listen to what he does. Verse 16, he says, 
she's very concerned about the social nature of this and, and that he shouldn't be talking to her and that she, he's a Jew and all this stuff. And so he goes, okay, go call your husband and come back. See, this would have been an appropriate start to the conversation initially because him having this conversation with this woman in the hot heat of the day all alone was awkward. And so he goes, okay, yeah, go call your husband and go back and come back. And she replies, verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you just said is quite true. <laughs> Jesus, no sugarcoating it at all. No, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. How's that working out for you? Where's, what can I do to help? He goes, no, thanks for telling me the truth. You don't have a husband, but let me tell you the rest of the truth. The rest of the truth is the thing you keep looking for. You've tried to solve it with man after man after man, and it hasn't worked out. And the real reason you're here in the heat of day at noon is this issue right here. This is why you feel you can't be an insider. This is why you feel like an outsider. This is why you feel like there's no seat for you at the table. This is why you feel like your community has shunned you. This is why you know in the back of your mind, in the core of your being, that essentially, if God the Father is up there, he must be disappointed in you. He must not want anything to do with you. He must be okay with those women that get up when it's nice and cool in the morning and come out and gather together because they certainly seem to have his favor, but not you. Not you, you're carrying the weight of all these broken relationships. It's hard when God reads our mail, isn't it? But he'll do it. If you get honest with him, God, I really just need this financial thing to get solved. And he goes, yeah, the problem is the five times I blessed you in the past, you've been irresponsible with it. And you're like, no, don't read my mail. All right. God, I just need this relationship to work out. Well, the problem is the last five relationships you've been in, you settled for less than my best. You've trained yourself to behave in a way that is honoring to man, but not to God. You've released yourself from the obligation to live in the image of Christ. And that's the reason that you're having a hard time. No, don't read my mail. God, I'm just really struggling with anger today. Well, yeah, that's because of the last week you've trained yourself to give full vent to your anger and you've behaved in a way that's just allowed yourself to chew up and spit out everyone on your path and now you're coming to me. Just saying. God, I'll read your mail. You think you're hiding it from him? Do you? Well, good luck with that. So she changes the subject. She's no dummy. Instead of addressing that issue, she's like, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Right? Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She throws out the, this is how we speak decide which table, right? We have other, other categories that, that, that this breaks into. And so let me establish a table for you over here because this got really personal. She immediately goes into what would have been a hotly contested theological debate of the time. Where do we worship God at? Woman, Jesus replied, I love this. Believe me, please believe me, believe me. 
A time is coming when you're going to worship the Father, either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. What is he saying? You think these things are dividing you? These things that you're slicing, the way you're choosing to divide yourselves from other people, they have no significance in the kingdom of God. These are man-made things. These are man-made things. These are man-made cultural distinctions that have nothing to do with the heart of the Father. Time's coming when you're not going to care about that at all. Where am I at? 22, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation's coming from the Jews. He says, there's going to be information that you get that you don't have. It's on the way. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. He says, there's going to be an authentic thing that happens in the heart of people. And it's not going to have anything to do with place. It's not going to have anything to do with ethnicity. It's not going to have anything to do with background. It's going to have everything to do with something that's happened between the heart of the worshiper and the heart of the Father. It's going to be something that happens in their spirit. He says, because God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And she has one last like dive shot. She's like, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. She's like, I've heard the stories. When he comes, he's gonna explain everything. (laughs) One last final shot to get away from the table, right? She's like, I I hear you. It sounds like you're a prophet. You're definitely saying some things that are rocking my boat, but I know there's gonna be a time when the Messiah comes and he's gonna just explain it to me. So can I please just get some water and go? He's got a little too personal. He's got a little too real. And she's like, can we just kick this conversation down the road? You've been in that conversation. You've been in that moment where the spirit of God is starting to surface something that's gonna pull a commitment out of you. It's gonna pull a step out of you. It's gonna force you to to take the the leap of faith, so to speak. And it's like, man, I'm really gonna have to do this thing. I'm gonna have to sign up or I'm gonna have to move or I'm gonna have to uh, uh, give my energy or I'm gonna have to do whatever the thing is that God's calling you to, I'm gonna have to take that job. And you're like, ah, someday God's gonna show up and, and give me the rest of this information. Let's just kick it down the road for as long as possible. It's her last attempt to get out of this. But Jesus still just welcomes her into the intimacy. He says, I'm God. I know all about you. There's living water here. Come on. Jesus declares, verse 26, hey, I who am speaking to you, I'm that guy you're worried about. I'm the one that came to explain all this and break it down for you so you can be an insider. And just like that, her picture of God is shattered. I'm going to land the plane here, guys, so I want you to just catch this. It says the disciples returned just then, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're like, hey, what's this woman doing over here talking to you? She isn't at our table. I love this, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? They're like, she doesn't belong at our table, Jesus, but none of us have the courage to point that out and actually speak out. Some of us are intimidated, feeling the vibe like someone, we shouldn't reach out to them because other people will judge us, people who are at our table. And Jesus just paints a picture. If you operate under the grace and compassion of God, it will silence the haters. They will, it'll take more courage than they have to to have their, come on now, to have their, uh, 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 gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's their, uh, uh, when when they don't want something, Yes, their approval. My California vocabulary failed me there. 
they don't have the courage to speak up there. They don't want to say what's going on here. They're just observing. Then look at what happens in verse 28. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. I love this. She left the water jar. This whole thing started in the middle of the desert in the heat. And she was like, I need a drink. And he's like, no, you need more than a drink. You need life and freedom and hope that it's available to you. And I don't see that either of them ever got a drink. Because when living water showed up, what you thought you needed changes. Right? I need, a, I need a table. I need a church that accepts whatever it is I need. But living water shows up and you go, oh, that jar is not as important to me. I need a church that, that does it this way. I need, I need that behavior to look like this. I, they got to worship for 40 minutes of music. And then that pastor better not speak more than 10, right? I don't know what it is. I don't know if that church exists. I'm just telling you, she leaves what she thought she needed because she has experienced living water. Truth and the love of the Father is living water. She goes back to town and says, come, come. She goes to the tables where she was never invited, where she's an outsider, and where, where we know that the, everyone was kind of inside and avoiding the heat of the day, and she goes back to town, and she's like, hey, I can imagine her pounding on doors. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She goes back to a town who, who feels like they're not at the table with God, who feels like they're outsiders, they're cultural outsiders, they're faith-based outsiders, they're ethnic outsiders, they're socioeconomic outsiders. And she goes back to that town because someone invited her to the table and she says, you should come see this thing because it's different than what I thought it was going to be. And it's different than what you thought it was going to be. In verse 39, skipping ahead, says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. She just goes back and tells her story. Here's the thing that's crazy. When we as a church start having these kind of conversations and inviting people who normally wouldn't sit at our table into our table, it changes their story. And then those are usually the most excited people to tell other people, hey, you know, you know the, the, the picture of church that you have because of your social media page, because of the news that you watch or whatever? Come and see a place that doesn't do that, that doesn't treat people that way, that doesn't only love people who are just like them. And it says, many in that town believed. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. They're like, come hang at our table. This is awesome. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We've actually heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Let me give you a couple key observations and then we'll get out of here. Jesus was clearly not bound by any social boundaries. No matter where you're at, you can be close to him. Do we see the needs of others the same way? No matter where they were at. I mean, we're talking about pariahs of that time. Married and divorced or married and widowed five times. Ethnically, socially, doesn't matter what your boundary is that bothers you. He was never bothered by those social boundaries. He invited people who were far from Jesus. Who are the people right now that you have a hard time if they were to come and sit at your table? that's going to tell you where your tension is with Jesus. 
Who are the people right now that if they came and sat at the table, you'd go, oh, they don't look right, think right, smell right, live right, believe right, eat right, stretch right. What's the thing? Where are the... Where's that line for you? Because that's going to be, listen, that's going to be your picture of how big your God is. Does your God overcome those boundaries? Is your picture of Jesus someone who would invite that person to the table or not? So how does Jesus break that for us and model for us how to live it? How can we be more like Jesus this way? And I'll just give you a couple tools. One of them is this. Remember this. Humble people ask questions. Arrogant people do not. Jesus never just walks in and starts blasting these folks. He just starts with questions. He invites them into the conversation. He says, he says, come and be with me. Do you have any water? Can I get a drink? He starts relationally with them right where they're at. And here's the tension. The scripture time and time again calls us to a life of humility and treating others like they have high value. And, and our natural instinct is to make assumptions of who and what they are based on what we see. And that's arrogance. No one ever came, well, maybe I shouldn't say no one. I'm unaware of anyone who ever came into a relationship with Jesus because an arrogant person said, you're not doing it right. All right? You might have fear-mongered someone into some kind of level of things, but that just doesn't stick. That's why you don't hear a lot of messages that go like, you know, the imminence of hell is around the corner and turn or burn in this moment. And there's some truth in the picture of finality of making decisions. But Jesus never took a, took a manipulative, fear-based approach. He always took a humble, kind, loving, value-the-person approach. He always started with just questions and inviting them into the tension. If you have a hard time with someone being at your table, my bet, my high suspicion is you probably haven't asked them very many questions. You probably haven't walked into a relationship with a humble heart who's at your table. Jesus was willing also then to confront he was willing also then to confront. He did it with passion and compassion and love. He never just, come on now, said, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> he never just said, well, don't worry about whatever the thing is. He went straight into the awkward, dark place of that person's life and spoke truth and love. He said, yeah, you know what? You just told me the truth, but you didn't tell me the whole truth. Your life has been in a series of failed relationships. And you're here right now because you're embarrassed of the situation that you're really in. He told her the truth, but he didn't do it in judgment. He didn't do it harsh. He did it in love and compassion and kindness. Here's how we know he doesn't do that because a few chapters later in John chapter what eight, he, he meets another woman who's caught in a horrific situation. She's been caught in adultery and they want him to pass judgment and condemn her. And he has this brilliant conversation where he says, okay, any of you who have lived perfectly, go ahead and do the condemnation thing you wanna do and they can't do it. And he's left alone with her. And then what is his move? What is his move? Does he just say, don't worry about it? no. But he says, you know what? If they didn't condemn you, I also don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He told her the truth, but there wasn't condemnation. If there's a lot of condemnation at your table, Jesus is probably not at your table. Just telling you. 
no matter how much you want to look like Jesus is at your table, it's just not God in Abad's behavior. It's just not. I'm telling you, you could look through this. I'm looking through the stories for that example. Clay Scroggins, a pastor, said it this way. He said, your view of God will be as small as the size of your table. What did he mean? He mean, if there's no more room at your table, then that's how big you believe God is. God can only reach people who are this way, who think this way or have this resource or look this way or use this language or whatever it is. Yet here's this picture of a God that creates the entire universe just so he could create this galaxy, just so he could create this planet, just so he could place it perfectly in a way that it would spin and not burn up or freeze. And he did all of that just so he could create you, and he created you just so he could love you. And yet we think God's picture of who can belong at the table is carved down to people who think and look and act the way we do. That does some things to my self-esteem, does some things to the way I think about how I should treat other people, and it challenges me at how we should live in our neighborhood and behave as a church. If we want to draw people out of isolation and into community, then how is that going to look? It's going to look messy. A table's not going to be clean all the time. Let's just be honest, church. There might be some stuff that gets knocked over and spilt and exposed. There might be some things that have to squeezed on and dealt with but every single one of those people so important to Jesus that come on now he spun the earth in perfect symmetry so he could create them so that he could love you and them if that's who he is then how big is our table and who gets to be a part are you ready for that journey church are you ready for that tension can you handle it if you come in and the seat you like isn't available because someone who you instinctively don't like is sitting there and you've got to fight that and cross the line and invite them to your table? Whoo! Are we ready for that? Are we ready for the messiness of loving someone who's coming out of addiction, who's coming out of sexual issues, who's coming out of you name it? Are you ready to love someone who's angry? Are you ready to love someone who's a far-right conservative or who's a far-left Democrat? Are you ready to love someone who reads all the opposite articles that you read, doesn't even like you? You're a Jew and a man. What are you doing sitting here? I need water. Will you give me a drink? I'm a woman and a Samaritan. What are you accepting me for? Would you give me a drink? If you knew the right questions, I'd give you more than a drink. If you knew what I was offering to you, I'd give you more than that. Whoo, church. It hurts a little to think, but what about the hope and the life that's available for each and every single person that you ran into? Would you stand with me? I hear the stampede. It's time to close. Our kids workers. If you have kids up there, would you just love on your kids workers? You should bring them gifts and cookies and things. I don't know. They love your kids so much and we love your kids. But 
I'm just believing, church, that in this next season, the doors that break open and the strongholds that get released in this church, but in this neighborhood and beyond that are going to be things that just blow our minds. And it's going to be messy, and I'm okay with messy because Jesus was okay with messy. God in the bod was okay that it was messy. Why? Because the people mattered. People mattered to God. You matter to God. He cares so much about you, and he cares too much about you to leave you where you're at. And then he cares so much about you that he wants to empower you. You know what? Will you bring me some water? He doesn't need your help to reach every person he wants to reach, but you get to be on the journey with him. Will you bring some water this time? Will you bring him some water? So Jesus, this morning, I'm, <laughs> I'm wrecked and wrestling with the tension of this way that you manifested love in the neighborhood. And I can immediately think of who I don't want at the table with me. And I'm, I just repent of that, Jesus. Change my heart and life. It does not take me long to think about who would be hard to love in this moment. But you didn't have that problem. And it's a problem for you when we have that problem. And you're changing our hearts and our lives to be more like you every day. And this is part of that journey. And if we're going to have genuine impact in the heart of this neighborhood, we've got to go on that journey together to become more and more like you. And it's not giving up the things we love that are good in the kingdom because you have those things for us. It's gaining even more. And that's the heart of the Father. Help us to see past racial lines. Help us to see past socioeconomic lines. Help us to see past uh, sexual, uh, sexuality issues. Help us to see past addictions. Help us to see past all of the things that we slice people down by. Help us to see past age issues and help us to see past generational markers and stigmas. Help us to just see past all of those things to see the heart of people that you love that have value. God, they don't sometimes even know the right questions to ask. This woman didn't know the right questions to ask, so you pointed out, if you, if you recognize what was really going on here, you'd have asked me for living water. Help us to have the kind of heart that looks past where someone is in this moment, but sees who you designed them to be. I can imagine a world where everyone in this room had a relationship with someone where they were able to share the love of God with them and see transformation and change happen. Not because we were such gifted evangelists, but because we just let people come to the table with us and opened up the picture of what heaven is like. It got bigger for us than the table we currently see. Give us those kind of eyes, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen, and amen.